Hey, I don't know about you, but I've really been enjoying this series that Pastor Darren has been doing on the love of God being lavished on us and really about, if, I, if I'm understanding him correctly, to help us understand his posture towards us, how he looks at us and how important that is for us. It really is important because many of us are struggling with obeying God. You know, there are some times when God asks us to do something, we know from his word he wants us to do it, but we have a hard time doing it. And so understanding how he looks at us is, is instrumental in us coming to a place where we want to obey. So it's very important to understand how he has lavished his mercy on us, what his, what his attitude toward us, how, how he looks at us. It's, it's key. I really appreciate it. It's been really good for me. And it's also very important because many of us walk around with a lot of anxiety. I've been noticing people today, a lot of anxiety about all kinds of different things. And how do we get a freedom from that? How do we really depart from that, really be released from that anxiety in our lives? So this has been great, and I wanted to help uh, in, in my time here before you. So I decided to, to do that. I would go back to where Darren began, and that was in Ephesians 1, to try to remove a big obstacle. For if, if you are still feeling there is something, uh, an obstacle to you believing that God really does accept you. I want to I take some time with this passage today because I think it helps us through helping us understand something about God and, and something about ourselves. It removes that obstacle. If I'm praying for that uh, for us this morning, that that obstacle would be removed. You would really understand God would grow appropriately big for you to understand how he has lavished his mercy upon us. So we're going to go to this passage, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Now, what to say about this passage? Uh, you know, it's one of these passages where if you read it, <clears throat> you read through it and you say, wow, that sounds great. But what did he just say? You know, it's like there, there are all these great thoughts in there. You're thinking about them, and you're like, but, but I, I'm not sure what it all means. And so I toyed with the idea, seriously, about coming in this morning and instead of giving my commentary on the passage, just read the passage over and over and over again. That would be our time. Now, don't worry. I'm not, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that because I am not in charge here. So <laughs> nothing so crazy as that. But, but i got to tell you, what, what can be said about this passage? And, you know, if you find it, while we're looking at this, if you find this hard to understand, I want you to know something. Your preacher does too. You know, I might get individual phrases, right? But you look at what does it mean in the whole? It starts with praise, right? It ends with praise. But what's that stuff, all that stuff in the middle? What's in the middle of the sandwich there, right? It's actually one long sentence in the Greek. 202 words. And the English editors, English translators, they make it easy on us, thankfully. They divide it up into sentences, but it's actually in the Greek, verses 3 through 14. It's one big thought. And so Paul uses this word, mysterion, in verse 9, mystery. And in, in Greek, that's a word that means things that, that don't seem like they should be able to be brought together, and yet they are. Things that, that they, they can't, all these different things that 
that don't seem to go together, and yet they do in Christ. And Paul uses this word 21 times in his writings. So somehow they are brought together. All these uh, different things. Now, if, if we feel like this is hard to understand this morning, let's just realize that we're not the first ones to feel this. You know, the Apostle Peter, in 2 Peter 3, as best we can tell, Simon Peter wrote this letter at the end of the New Testament called 2 Peter. In 2 Peter 3, uh, Peter actually says, you know, the Apostle Paul writes some really great things, but some of them are really hard to understand. <laughs> and it's interesting, if you go back and read 2 Peter 3, he seems to be talking about our inheritance, things that we've inherited in Christ. The very things that Paul is talking about here, you see in that, I think it's verse 11, right? The word inheritance. It, it seems to be talking about the same stuff. So it could be that Peter is actually thinking about this very passage that we're about to read. Could be. But my point is that if Simon Peter finds some things in Paul hard to understand, this is the Simon Peter, right? This is the foundation. This is the rock of the church. If he feels this way, perhaps about even this passage, we shouldn't feel stupid, all right, if we feel this way too. So you got to understand, this is good for your Bible reading as well. There are some things in the Bible that are hard to understand. It's not sacrilegious for any of you to say some of the things in the Bible are hard to understand. In fact, it's Bible to say some of the things in the Bible are hard to understand, okay? Not everything in the Bible is hard to understand, but this passage certainly is. So please stand with me as I read it to you this morning. We're going to be reading from the New King James Version. You can read along, though, in your own Bible if you want. Again, it's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound, or he lavished on us, in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ." both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. (gasps) 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Okay. We can do this. We can do this, okay? Just sit up straight. Try to pay attention to me (laughs) as we do this. What I'm going to do is give you the main theme of Paul's message here, the main theme. And we can find it in verses 4 through 6. And we put it up on the screen here. We can look at it. We went backwards. There we go. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. This is the main thing that he's trying to get across. And we can hang other thoughts about about the passage and, and the phrase of the passage on this main idea. And it is that he chose us, as it says in verse 4. He chose us and he did it a long time ago, before the foundation of the world. And that's why it's a predestiny, because he did it a long time ago. That if you believe in Christ, that if you find you come to a place in your life where you trust in Christ, it's because he chose you and he did it before the foundation of the world. And it was on the, entirely on the basis of his good pleasure, the good pleasure of his will. All of this is, is to bring glory to him. We are here to the praise of his glory, and all of it happens in the beloved one. Now, this is, this is a big theme. It's about predestination. And I know it's his main theme. You know how I know? Because he says the same thing over again. He actually repeats himself. And and you can see this parallelism between what happens in verses 4 through 6 and then what happens in verses 11 through 12, where he repeats the same ideas and actually, in some cases, uses the exact same words. And, you know, this kind of repetition shows he's emphasizing this. This This is his main point. This is what he wants to bring home to us. And so if you look at it, you'll notice it's saying the same thing. It's a little bit hard to see in verse 11 because it says he appointed us in some translations. It's actually the Greek word klerao. It, means, it, mean, it doesn't just mean we got the inheritance. It means he appointed us. He appointed us to receive the inheritance. He chose. It's another way of saying he chose us. He selected us. And lest there be... Um, any doubt, if you missed it the first time, when he did it, (laughs) he repeats it again, um, that it was predestined, pre. And so he uses these words with predestined and for in them, predestined. And lest there be any ambiguity about that on which this decision is based, he tells us, again, it was according to the counsel of his will, according to something inside of himself where he decided this. And again, he says, this is all to the praise of his glory. That's the point of all this. And it all happens in that one, that beloved one, which we find out the second time is in Christ, Jesus Christ. So we have to reckon with this teaching that Paul seems so emphatic on giving us. He pounds on predestination here in this parallelism. Okay, you like that? Paul pounds predestination in the parallelism. Nespa? Yes, he does. So we have to deal with it. We're chosen. He's saying here that if you find that you believe in Christ, 
It's because he chose you, not based on some foreknowledge about you or, or what you are going to do, but the reason is found entirely in himself. It was done before the creation of the world, before you were around, before anybody was around to know anything. He made that decision and decided that he would save you in Christ and send Christ to accomplish that salvation. So if you believe in Christ, that's the ultimate reason why you do. Now, this is said in other New Testament letters in different ways, but it's, but it's especially clear here. If you believe in Christ, it's because he chose you. And that is what we have to let sink in. Now, I know as soon as I say this, in fact, I can read it on some of the expressions in your faces. You don't like this. You do not like this. After all, how dare God predestinate people? How God how dare God predest anybody predestine you or me? I mean, I'm an American after all, right? You know, I've been dealing with uh, people in other countries recently. I've had to communicate with people in different countries, and I've been struck by how deeply this is ingrained in us as Americans. America is about free choice. And, you know, if we decide we're going to go somewhere, we go there. And nobody's going to tell us we can't go to a certain place, you know? And, and that's very deep in us. I realize that talking to, it's not like that in many other countries. We don't realize that. You think, oh, well, if I, if I decide I'm going to go somewhere, I go there. If I'm going to decide I'm going to do this, and pretty much if I'm going to say something, I can say it. It's a free country, right? And we think that, and it's not like that in other countries. I've been struck by how deep this is in me as an American. It's all about free choice, Right? I freely choose who's going to govern me. I freely choose, you know, how I'm going to educate my children. In fact, I freely choose what bathroom tissue I'm going to use, right? And nobody's going to tell me to use a different one. That's the one I use. I choose it, right? It's all about free choice. So this passage comes at us, and what's it saying to us? Hey, yeah, come on, come on, come on. You've got to step outside your country a little bit. Think outside your country, to accept what it's saying here, because he is pounding on predestination. Look, I'm going to show you how you can tell you're predestined this morning. I'm going to prove it to you. It's very easy. It's an easy, easy way for you to tell that you're predestined to believe in this stuff. You know how you, know how you can tell? Because you believe in this stuff. <laughs> if, you look, if you look at verses 8 through 9, okay, he says, this is how it happens this is how the predestination gets worked out in you. This is what it does. It's through us getting wisdom and prudence in the King James Version or other translations, understanding. It's talking about our, our wisdom, our getting wise, our getting understanding. And he, and he explains that in verse 9 as well. He enables us to understand this mystery and, uh, you know, it, so it's something that, that somehow we come to accept this. And this is how you can tell you're predestined. Because you know what we believe? It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy what we believe. Now, you might not think that if you spend all your time around Christians. And some Christians do that. It's not good. But they say, you know, the point of my life is to surround myself with as many Christians as possible. You know, that's nice. Christians are generally nice. But it's not God's plan. 
And I don't feel like, you know, probably it's not very, it's not as true here in Ironworks, just because of your sensibilities here. But for a lot of Christians, it's like, I just want to surround myself with Christians. Just, it feels better. But then, you know what you do? You stop realizing how crazy it is, the things you believe. I was at a wedding not too long ago, and I had a conversation with a very fine fellow. We started talking. And he started telling me about different things about his life. But then he found out I was a Christian. And, and he decided to have some fun with me. He said, you know, you're a Christian. You don't really believe the things you're supposed to believe as a Christian. Do you know that? And I was like, wait, what? You know? And he said, do you actually believe that a woman who is a virgin Okay, did not have uh, relations with any man. Like one day, she got pregnant and had a, had a normal pregnancy, brought, brought forth, gave birth to a child where there was no other man involved. I mean, think about that. It's a woman without any guy. Somehow God created sperm inside of her and impregnated her, and so then she became and had a child. Do you really believe that? And I was like, well, yeah, I guess I'm a Christian. I believe that. He said, do you believe that a man who is dead for three days, three days, no life, no pulse, no heartbeat, no brainwaves, and you know, if you're dead for more than a few minutes, if you're dead for more than 15 minutes, you're brain dead, then you will have irreparable brain damage. You know, you don't come back from that. He said, if you believe that a man was dead for three days without any help from anybody else, just got up and started walking around again. Do you actually believe that? And I was like, well, yeah, uh, yeah, I believe that. Um, He said, do you believe that you and everybody else, after you die and your body breaks down and, you know, all the molecules go apart and you disintegrate and actually your molecules then get recycled and used in other organisms, maybe other people walking around. You completely go to dust and that you're going to rise again, like all of their molecules, that you're going to come back together and rise again. Do you actually believe that? And I was like, ah, shucks. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I believe that. And, you know, he had a whole list of these things and went through them. By the end of them, I was thinking, Oh, do I believe it? <laughs> Should I believe this? You know, probably the craziest thing, if you just think about it, is that we believe that this torturous death that happened to, to this man 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world, where he was this brutal torture, execution as a criminal, somehow affects my relationship with God now. Let's think about that. Somehow, that brutal, torturous death 2,000 years ago affects what's happening with me and God, makes me right with God now. Friends, that's crazy. It's crazy. It's true, but it's crazy. So why on earth would we believe this? Why, how could we believe this? Unless unless we're predestined, unless God somehow through no action of our own came inside of us and made us able to receive wisdom and prudence, able to understand this mystery. 
That's why we know. That's how it happened. Or as Jesus put it, no one, quote, John chapter 6, no one comes to me unless the Father enables him, until the Father enables him, unquote. No one does. Now, that's a problem. That's a problem for us, right? Because we don't really feel like we're predestined. We feel like we have some kind of responsibility. In it. And doesn't, don't you even read that in this passage? If you read, for example, verse 13, aren't there things that even seem to contradict that? Verse 13, it says, you trusted, you trusted after you heard. You're in Christ now because you trusted after you heard. And again, having believed, you were sealed. Weren't sealed before, you believed, but you believed and you were sealed. So it, it speaks as if we had some kind of responsibility. In fact, the rest of the letter speaks as if you had some responsibility. Here are the things of God. You need to respond to them. You need to trust in them, right? The rest of Ephesians speaks that way. And actually, for, for all of for that matter, you come to church every week and you hear us say to you, believe in Christ, trust in Christ, as if you had something to do with it. Don't you? Every week you come here, you hear this from us over and over again. Trust in Christ, believe in Christ. As if you had some responsibility. So what's the deal? Do you or do you not? Well, that's why Paul uses this word in verse 9, musterion, mystery. It's these things that are brought together. Both are, are true. Both seem to be true. And yet you don't see how they could both be true. And yet in Christ, they're both true. You know, it's the same trouble with another mystery, another famous mystery. <clears throat> and that's Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. How many of you have ever read that book or seen a movie, a rendition of it? Okay, good. You know what I'm talking about. A great mystery. One of the great mysteries of Agatha Christie in which... The, the famous inspector, Monsieur Hercule Poirot, is on this train. And Monsieur Poirot has to solve this murder that was committed on the train while it was moving, right? And so at, at a certain point, he turns to the conductor. This is the best line in the story. He turns to the conductor and he says, do you know what the problem in this case is? The problem is there are too many clues too many clues. In other words, there are different things that are pointing to different people having committed the murder. They can't all be true, or can they? It's the same problem here. There are too many clues here. They're pointing in different directions. Can they all both be true? And the answer of the Bible emphatically, repeatedly, is yes. Both clues are true. Both are true. Things in heaven and things on earth, the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ unites them. And so most of the time, we spend our time down here on earth, and we understand, you know what? I decide to follow Christ. I decide to follow Christ. And that's true down here. Do you know what? Up here in the heavenlies, from God's perspective, God's experience, I chose you. You chose me because I chose you. And the Bible unapologetically, unapologetically holds both of these things together. Repeatedly, both of these things together. At the same time, 
God says, I harden Pharaoh's heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then while it's going on, I harden Pharaoh's heart. At the same time, Pharaoh hardens his heart against God. And he's responsible for it. He's, he's despicable in the way he hardens his heart against God. Okay, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, ordained betrayer from the foundation of the world. Same time, down here, Judas Iscariot, awful, despicable, responsible for his decision when he betrays Christ. Because he's really a thief. He's a liar and he's a thief. And he's responsible for it. Better that, better, it would have been better if he hadn't been born. So again, down here, I choose God. Up here, because I chose you. Both are true. This is, friends, this is what I call an intellectual seam that we have. Intellectual seam is like a seam in a garment where two things come together. And you're like, how do they come together? You know, when you, sometimes you're wearing your clothes and you, um, you notice something is, is going on. You're like scratching you're, and you check and you're like, oh. Oh, and you look and you're like, oh, there's a seam in the garment. That's what's bothering me. I've got this seam here, right? And what happens when you notice that seam in the garment? What do you think? It reminds you. It's like, oh, yeah, this is made. <laughs> it's not one seamless garment because it's been made. The garment, the seam in the garment reminds you the thing has been created by a creator. The same thing is happening here with us. When we come to these places where there something, two things seem to come together that don't seem to be true. It's an intellectual seam. They don't seem like they could be true, and yet both are true. That's an intellectual seam, and it's there to remind us that we're creatures, that we're made, that God made us. He gave us our intellect. It's not our authority. It's our tool. It's a pretty good tool, but it has limits. There are places beyond which our rationality cannot take us. And that's what this intellectual scene helps us to do. It helps us to see that when we see it. And it's there. So that's the way I understand it. You might still reject this, but if you're going to reject this, you're going to say, you know what? This is nonsense. You're asking me to believe these two things. How could both of them be true? Human responsibility and God's foreordained pre-selection. How could that be? It's just nonsense. If you reject what I'm saying, I just want you to know something. Every worldview has intellectual scenes in it. Everyone does. There are places in every worldview where two things come together, they don't seem like it can be true, and yet they, they must both be true. You don't believe me? Let me come with you. Let me, you know, let me just take, take some time here to salons so we're doing this. Let me come with you. And in, in your skepticism about this, let's just say that, you know, what we're talking about here is all hokum. All this kind of Bible stuff and God and Christ and Christianity and that stuff, let's say it's all hokum. And let's throw it out. Let's get rid of it. Yeah. Okay, let's walk away from it. Now, where are you? What are you left with? Are you free? Uh-uh. Because now, my friends, you are a chance collocation of molecules that have come together 
selected by the environment to chemically determine everything that happens in every one of your hundreds of trillions of cells, those cells are responsible for everything that you do and everything that you are. You think that you walk away from Christianity and that you have left this problem? You have not left your, this problem. You've made it worse. Because now you are determined by chemical laws and then biological laws, everything that you do. You know, Sam Harris, the famous atheist, prominent atheist of our day, he understood this very clearly. He wrote in his book, <clears throat> in, this is Sam Harris in The Free Will, quote, my choices matter and there are paths toward making wiser ones, but I cannot choose what I choose. And if it ever appears that I do, for instance, after going back between two options, I do not choose to choose what I choose. There is a regress here that always ends in darkness, unquote. I admire his clarity here. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying that you think that you've chosen to do something, but you're actually already determined by these chemical laws themselves based on physical laws. So you think you decide, you think you decided to marry her? You think you decided to marry him? Uh-uh. It's actually a chain of physical and chemical reactions inside of him. He couldn't have chosen otherwise. I'm sorry. <laughs> he is determined by these physical chemical laws that go back a long way, millions of years in his evolution. And so he didn't really choose. He couldn't have chosen otherwise. You think that you're deciding what you're having for lunch today? I know you're not deciding now. I know you're not thinking about that now. You're riveted to the sermon, right? But, but you're going to decide what you're going to have. You think you're going to decide what you're going to have for lunch today? Nah. It's all a chain of chemical reactions and physical reactions. It all depends really on your brain history, which itself is determined by DNA, your DNA, which has been selected over millions of years to be what you are. You do not have that choice. You are already determined. You think you've decided whether you are for or against a border wall between U.S. and Mexico? Uh-uh, sorry. It's just the way the atoms bounce. That's what he means by that. So friends, you think you've walked away from this problem in Christianity? No, you don't have an intellectual seam anymore. You have a tear. <laughs> it's torn. Why? Because you no longer have an explanation for this searing and obvious crisis in your rationality. You don't even know why you would have such a, such a crisis, and you have absolutely no comfort in regard to your faith. So you can't avoid selection, whether it's natural <laughs> or God's. You can't avoid it. This isn't a problem of being a Christian. It's a problem of being a person with a mind. How are you? You okay? I knew you could take it. That's where we are. So what we want to do is live as a creature. You know, Paul was not ignorant of philosophy. He is a classically trained person, almost, almost a Roman citizen, almost positive he had a classical training. He, in, in his writings, 
Six different times he quotes classical literature. And that's just in the writings of his that we do have. So he's not being naive here in Ephesians 1 and making those statements. He's doing it, though, for, for a reason. And it has to do with that third thing, that is is to the praise of his glory. The second time, you are to his glory. You are to the praise of his glory. He's doing this. He's pounding predestination so that we might accept it, so we might know we really do not have any reason that God has lavished his grace on us. He's chosen us, so we can't wreck it. You can't wreck it. The reason he pounds this on is so that you would know, you'd know the, how much he's lavished upon us. This, this selection that he's made. There's every reason to suspect, friends, that we, our, our rationality has limits in comprehending uh, what's true in the world, what's real, because we're inside of creation. There would, it would make sense that we would not be able to completely grasp. But Paul wants to hammer this, that we are to God's glory, and that allows God to grow appropriately bigger to us, appropriately bigger to you. And the reason that's important is because the effect it has on us in receiving his love. See in verse 4, predestination and human responsibility are united in verse 4 in love, by love. In love he predestined us. Truly he has lavished this on us. We do not deserve it. And you know what this does? It tends to contradict our tendency to our building up our self-esteem. doesn't matter what happens to us when it gets knocked down. We tend to try to build it back up again. And this, this contradicts our need to do that. Remember Pastor Darren's definition of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is coming to believe that we can actually do something to make God favorably disposed towards us. And this obliterates that. Because he chose you before the foundation of the world. You are secure in him. And what happens is it makes you want to do what he wants you to do. It makes you want to do what's right. It brings you freedom to that. Because you realize you haven't made yourself special to him. Oh, you are special to him. But the reason ultimately is found in, his, in the good counsel of his will. <clears throat> and that's what I was trying to explain to my wedding friend, is because of what Christ has lavished on me, that's why I want to do what pleases him. I want to cooperate with the program. See, if you accept this predestination, then you know your unworthiness. You know your unworthiness, you grasp his love. You grasp his love, you feel your responsibility to him. All you want to do is cooperate. There was a woman who was speaking to me one time. I was ministering to her. And she um, was finding it hard to, to, uh, to do what God wanted her to do. We were talking about it. And she said, you know, I always thought I was a good girl. I always thought I, I could be good until I actually tried to be good. <laughs> she said, when I tried to be good, I realized I couldn't do it. But it was her understanding of being selected by God that led her to a freedom to obey God. It's the way it worked in her. So more importantly than that, 
You are secured in God's love. And because he chose, you can't, as I said, you can't wreck it. And when you know this, friends, you are freed by this. It's like, it's done. It was done before the foundation of the world. You can relax. You can relax about that. It's okay. There was a man that was dying who I went to see, and he was a believer. He did trust in Christ. And the more I talked to him, the more I realized he was not afraid of death. He wasn't afraid of it at all. And I said to him, you know, you're pretty clear you're just not afraid of dying, which is what you might expect. You go to visit somebody who's dying, right? That he'll be afraid, she'll be afraid of dying. Like, no, I'm not afraid really of dying. And I talked to him, I said, well, what about the pain that comes before death? Are you afraid of that? Because, you know, the particular type of cancer that you have, it's um, potentially going to be very painful at the end. Are you afraid of the, that pain that may come? He was like, you know, really, Sam, I'm not. Because I know whatever I experience, it's far less than I deserve. And I was, I was like, well, what on earth can I say to this guy? <laughs> he is secure in God's love. He knew he was chosen. There was nothing I could bring to him. In fact, he, he was bringing it to me. So let us receive this word, friends. Let us not turn away from it. Let's accept that. We may have intellectual seams, but God is proclaiming this truth. He's, he's clearing the water briefly. He's pulling back the veil of the heavenlies so that we might be assured of the love that he has lavished upon us. You can trust it. And I want us to trust it now as we come to the Lord's table and we prepare ourselves to receive the physical emblems of that love.